Hello, Dr. Montgomery. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? Good. Nice to see you again. Likewise. Good to hear your voice and good to talk to you. Good. So it's going to be just you tonight. Um, Dr. Okay. Allen moved his panel to another night. So this will give okay. us an opportunity to ask you some questions directly. Wonderful. Look forward to it. Okay. Do you want to first take a um, a minute just to um, quickly uh, give people an <clears throat> idea of what you've been doing the last 20 years? <laughs> wow. Um, so as many of you may know, uh, I'm a board certified cardiologist. I've been practicing in the allopathic uh, medical space for a long time. My, my medical practice, which consists of internal medicine, cardiology, and cardiac electrophysiology, which covers all the specialties I was trained in, uh, has been operational for going on 26 years now. Um, uh, in the context of, of that operation, I started out um, you know, seeing patients in the acute setting, in the outpatient setting, uh, implanting devices, doing, you know, cardiac catheterization procedures, peripheral arteriograms, and doing cardiac ablations and device implants like defibrillators and the like. Uh, my uh, medical approach to things uh, began to evolve over time as I saw my patients getting sicker, uh, started seeing how chronic illness affected my life personally as well as family members. So we started with a plant-based nutritional approach and saw great uh, outcomes, excellent outcomes in our patients in a very short period of time. Uh, we created more support systems and a great structure around using plant-based nutrition uh, as, a, an, as an intervention in and of itself. Uh, we went to the extent of putting a, a restaurant, uh, nutrition center, grocery store in our medical facility. Excuse me, more recently, uh, we've started integrating other modalities. Uh, we started using uh, targeted uh, uh, nutraceuticals, uh, other regenerative therapies such as ozone therapy, infrared sauna therapy. Uh, we're looking at uh, integrating things like stem cell therapy and, and the like. So we use a combination of uh, lifestyle and natural interventions to help patients with advanced chronic illnesses, reverse these illnesses, and also reduce their requirement for prescription medications, medical procedures, and hospitalization. We manage the patient who are acutely ill in the hospital, so we will manage them there, you know, stabilize them, detox them in that setting, remove them from the hospital setting, manage them in a quasi or subacute setting in our center, and stabilize them to where they're, you know, living a more healthy and uh, uh, an optimized life. Uh, we also have trainers, so we use uh, prescribed uh, exercise, so fitness is a formal part of our integrative uh, and regenerative uh, therapeutic uh, approach. Okay. And um, do you still work in a hospital? Yes, yeah, so I still work in a hospital. Uh, I have admitting privileges at one of the largest hospitals in Houston. Uh, I practice in the world's largest medical center, uh, which where our medical center is four miles south of that center. Uh, and uh, so we practice a different type of medicine, but I still have to admit patients to that hospital to uh, stabilize their condition. Uh, the other day, uh, I was called by um, the one of our patients who had her mother-in-law was ill in the hospital, and she asked us to help out 
in that regard. I spoke to the physicians, this patient was in the ICU and was sort of helping manage her care to a certain extent uh, using some natural interventions uh, juxtaposed with the allopathic approach to try to you know, improve overall health. So Dr. Montgomery, you are in a very, very unique situation. You're a medical doctor, a cardiologist. You work in a real mainstream hospital doing mainstream heart and cardiac work. And then you also have your own center that uses whole food plant-based nutrition to treat people. So that's correct. So you're and, not a you're not offering us a theory. You're saying you're one of the very few people in the country that is fully immersed in two different worlds. So it's where many people are just offering a thought or an opinion or something they read. You are in the thick of it in both worlds. So what do you want to tell us? Um, are we overvaluing the benefits of whole food plant-based? Are we undervaluing it? Like what is... What is the difference between, um, tell us the difference between the two, what the results have been, what the approach is, like how would you compare these two different approaches to taking care of your heart? You know, that's a very excellent question. And it's, it's interesting. And as I, I'm listening to you finish the question, I'm thinking about, well, you know, what's the best answer? So you ask, are we overvaluing it? Or are we undervaluing it? And, and interestingly enough, um, the answer may be a little bit of both. <clears throat> and, and by that, I mean the following. We clearly undervalue it. And I think it, maybe if I have to give a percentage <laughs> response, maybe 75% is undervaluing it. Okay, maybe it's as a 25% overvaluing it. And maybe it's, you know, 80, 20 or whatever. But, but the point is that we clearly undervalue the power of nutrition uh, in the sense, and that's not the whole food plant-based community that's undervaluing it, but that's just us in the medical community in general. The reason I say this is that we see uh, patients who have severe illnesses. When I say severe illnesses, they are so acutely ill, they're too sick to have bypass surgery. They're too sick to have uh, acute angioplasty or too sick for any other kind of surgery. And, those, and, and some of them are often given up for hospice. And we've had many of those patients who put on a defined, I like to use the word defined, uh, plant-based nutritional regimen uh, with certain manipulations of the food. And those patients can get a complete turnaround in their overall well-being to the point where they come off medications or discharged from the hospital, removed from hospice care, or become ambulatory and are able to exercise to a certain extent. So that's what we have seen, not just one or two patients, but with thousands of patients over two decades uh, from time to time at different levels of illness in terms of how well they turn around. So that's the power of nutrition. The small percentage in which we may overvalue it is in the sense that there are many individuals who may have severe deficiencies be they a severe micronutrient deficiency or mineral deficiency, maybe they're severely deficient in magnesium or whatever the case may be, you may have to then use some target supplementation to assist the body in healing itself. Maybe someone that has severe cancer 
where we may need to use a target micronutrient supplementation, uh, for example, intravenous vitamin C or intravenous ozone therapy uh, or infrared, infrared sauna therapy, uh, et cetera. So there are many individuals who have certain specialized conditions who would benefit from some of these added approaches that are necessary to help turn them around. So I would say it's a little bit of both. Certainly the power of nutrition is, is, is not valued enough, and that's the majority of that response. But there's a small aspect that we uh, don't realize, those of us who are in the plant-based community don't realize that it's not always enough and other adjunctive therapies need to be added. Do people who eat a whole food plant-based diet with no oil and minimal salt, sugar, and fat, do they still sometimes have heart attacks and strokes? Uh, they can. They can. Now, let me let me quantify that. Because then if you have those individuals who may have severe deficiencies, because again, things that predispose us to heart attack and stroke are not just you know, uh, as I like to call it, dead animal flesh foods, although that's a big contributing factor. Uh, and they may not always be just some of the toxins and, and uh, the processed carbohydrates that people may eat. So if someone is on a whole food plant-based diet, let's say, for instance, they converted to a whole food plant-based diet within the last year, but maybe, and maybe they're, you know, 51 years old, but the 50 years prior to that, they were eating perhaps the worst standard American diet there is. So then they're on this whole food plant-based, you know, low salt, low fat diet, but maybe they're microwaving their food and maybe they're cooking most of their food, uh, et cetera. They haven't, with that diet, have not given a body a chance to go back and correct these, you know, processes and, and, and abnormal processes that's built up in their system. So, from the standpoint of food, we use food not from the standpoint of just removing uh, nutritionally deficient food or nutritionally toxic food, but we use nutrition from a, in a manipulative standpoint. So for instance, when I say a defined plant-based diet, we often put the patients on a raw plant-based diet. We often put them on time-restricted eating. Sometimes I may put them on just cold-pressed juices or cold-pressed uh, uh, or raw smoothies uh, depending on their clinical condition. If someone with inflammatory bowel disease, many of them cannot properly digest uh, a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, and so, you know, they may not be pulling in the adequate nutrients. Also, it does reduce the inflammatory process rapidly enough. So th there's certain situations where someone's eating a whole food plant-based diet and they may still suffer an acute event it just depends on exactly how they're applying that whole food plant-based diet. That's one. Two, it depends on the platform in which they're, they're starting from. So let me ask that question a little differently. If someone's eating a perfect whole food plant-based diet, they're, sleep, <laughs> they're sleeping, they're exercising, their stress is moderate, they have a no salt, no sugar, no oil diet, they're eating you know, really a high lot of raw vegetables with it, do sometimes people like that still have a heart attack or stroke? You know, I think the chances are minimal. I mean, for instance, you know, you, you, you get into biological statistical events and maybe 
um, maybe something else in their life happens that can trigger that biological event, uh, something outside of the food. Uh, maybe they get uh, in touch with some type of a chemical substance. Maybe they take a medication. Maybe they take a, you know, you know, some type of a, you know, immunization, whatever. And they may have an adverse effect to that substance that they put in their body. Because remember, a perfect whole food plant-based diet doesn't mean that they're not putting other things in their system. Um, and what about saturated fat from plant-based sources? Is that a problem? You know, if the plant sources are not cooked, uh, I don't think it's a problem. I mean, for instance, coconut meat in the whole food form has some form of saturated fat. Now, people say, well, you increase cholesterol, LDL cholesterol with that. Um, that may be true, but that molecule, that saturated fat molecule in the coconut is biochemically different than the saturated molecule that come from uh, animal product. So if it's a whole food and it's not processed in its natural state, then I think that form of fat, quote unquote, is going to be okay for you. For people who are trying to avoid disease, especially heart disease and stroke, what do we need to know about these four things? Total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and triglycerides. What do we need to know? You know, one thing. Uh, regarding triglycerides, I'll, I'll start there. I, I like to look at triglyceride to HDL ratio. If you have a higher triglyceride to HDL ratio, that's a, uh, uh, an underlying signal that you may have insulin resistance. If you have insulin resistance, then uh, insulin behaves like a growth hormone and it can potentiate smooth muscle uh, proliferation and, and, and vascular cell walls and, and potentiate vascular disease. Uh, a somewhere and therefore anywhere. That's one. Two, LDL cholesterol it predisposes to atherogenesis. Generally speaking, um, I like to think of it in terms of the particle size the LDL cholesterol molecules are carried in. So if you have you know high LDL cholesterol and a high number of, of, of small particles, then I tend to worry about that because it tends to be more atherogenic. Uh, and of course, total cholesterol, um, you know, again, underscores all of that. But but more so, if you have an abnormal, uh, quote unquote, abnormal cholesterol panel, i.e. too high cholesterol, I tend to think of that as an underlying metabolic disorder. And so an underlying metabolic disorder, I first of all think of the liver, but the other you know, smooth uh, skeletal muscle, metabolism, et cetera. But you have an underlying medical uh, metabolic disorder, which potentiates an underlying biochemical imbalance. So I tend to step back and look at that uh, lipid profile, not just say, oh, well, high LDL, atherosclerosis, and high triglyceride ratio, ratio insulin resistance, and da da da. That's true. But I think when we step back and look at that, abnormal, quote-unquote, abnormal lipid uh, metabolism, we need to say, okay, this is underlying abnormal metabolism in general, i.e. that's hepatic dysfunction and other cells and organ dysfunction too. And having said that, then the whole biochemical milieu is off balance. And so that's when you're looking at potential, you know, acute events, because 
when you have biochemical imbalance, predispose a lot of things. It predisposes mitochondrial dysfunction, which predisposes, you know, inflammation. And these things are happening at the cellular level. And so we don't, we're not able to directly measure all of these things. So that's why I look at these global smoke signals, i.e. abnormal lipid profile, and say that's where there's smoke, there's fire. So someone's lipid profile may be off, but then there's fire inside the cell. And that's where the problem is. And we don't always understand exactly what's happening at the cellular level when we see these numbers. If someone says to you, um, I, I understand you recommend a whole food plant-based diet, but there's absolutely no way I'm going to do that. But I'd like to know what's the best animal products to eat for my heart or what's the least worst. So is there an order between beef, chicken, fish, dairy, eggs, turkey, veal? Is there some hierarchy of what you would, if someone's going to absolutely insist on eating it, what would be the, the best of those? Gosh, that now that's a very difficult question. I mean, you know, <laughs> I guess the order I give them, depending on my motivation, you know, I guess which which order would I recommend be depending on whether I want them to feed my practice over the long run or not. But I mean, to take your question more seriously, you know, some people argue that you want to consume animals that are uh, biologically further away from, you know, your the human being, right? So you're going to eat something that's not a mammal. So, okay, you're not going to eat a monkey or whatever. But fish, perhaps in that list you gave, is probably, you know, the furthest away from, you know, human beings. You know, you're not, it's further from the cow, you know, cow, you know, you, you, maybe the cow's less on that list, maybe fish. And that's what some people argue. Maybe you can make that theological argument. Uh, however, uh, it's, I think those, those foods are so bunched together, it's hard to say. But I guess I would put fish and, and maybe sardines in particular uh, there. I wouldn't make any of the uh, crab or shellfish in that list. So I'd probably just specialize sardines. And then the other fish, I'd say, try to avoid it. I don't know. Next on that list, um, you may say fowl before pigs and cows. Because pigs and cows are closer to humans. But this is just a guess. And so sardines, uh, wild, wild fowl, and, and no domesticated animals. So you, you would want to try to get the wild animals that you can. So sardines, wild fowl, and then domesticated pigs and cows would be last on the list. It's the best. That's the best I can do. That's a that's a tough, you know, one to to get. I've, I've asked, been asked that question before. I think you've been the person to ask that. <laughs> what is your thought as a cardiologist about raw seeds, nuts, avocados, olives, and then separately of good quality oils like hemp, flax, olive, chia, walnut? So first, raw organic, vegan, but fats, seeds, nuts, avocados, and olives, and then a separate question, high-quality oils. What are your thoughts so, on that? 
So I'm good with the seeds and nuts uh, and avocados, and they should be raw. I'm glad you emphasized that they're raw. You know, the, the, the one issue with the seeds and nuts is that, you know, we can go to the supermarket and, you know, those things are just in large containers and you can just, you know, you can fill up a bag of the nuts and you go shopping. By the time you get to the cash rich, they're half price, you know? And so the thing is that it's the nuts in their natural state. So if I were to say, add to that raw seeds, nuts, and and avocados in their natural state, meaning that to consume them, you got to crack each shell, or pick it out, or whatever. That's even better uh, because it 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 reduces the amount that you can just sort of eat very easily. Um, uh, so clearly, those in a natural state are fine. But even if they're not in the shells, if you 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 know don't overdo it, uh, then I think you're fine. From the standpoint of oils, I think we should limit the oils. I mean, the only oils we, um, you know, have our patients consume are in the form of like a vitamin D supplement, or there may be other supplements that may have an oil uh, uh, with it in order to help absorption of a, a targeted supplement. But we don't recommend the use of any oils on a regular basis, even in the raw state, even on the salad dressing. I mean, if if on a rare occasion you have something out that has oil in it, that's one thing. But we just recognize, we recommend total absence of oil, and especially if someone's in a detox uh, situation. So the, the detox situation, and I like to emphasize that when when I'm talking about food with certain patients, when I'm talking to someone who's acutely ill, and we have them on a on an aggressive detox. That's akin to having them in the medical ICU. So the medical ICU, your behavior with that patient is much different than on the step-down telemetry ward, much different than on the regular uh, ward. So there's going to be a level of stringency in the ICU with a patient in a much more critical condition than it is of a patient in a regular medical ward. So if someone's in a detox regimen, a heart failure patient comes in, their volume overload, have to give them diuretics. You know, they're, they're acutely ill, they're inflamed. They may have uh, lupus. They may have also renal insufficiency. So they, they have these chronic inflammatory conditions and they're teetering on the verge of having to be hospitalized. That person on a raw detox diet, not a bite, not a drop, not a crumb of anything outside of what we recommend. And so there are no exceptions with the manipulation of the diet. So I, I, I gave you that piece of detail to, to answer that question more fully because when I say, okay, no oil, uh, with the exception of maybe on a rare occasion, you know, X, Y, and Z, da, 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 that's in one situation. But in another situation, I'm going to say absolutely no oil. Uh, some, I've had patients come with a whole food, uh, plant-based diet with severe coronary disease. And uh, one patient come to mind, he had poor dentition, so he couldn't eat the raw greens. I put him on the raw smoothies and cold-pressed juices until he was able to get his dentures fixed. But even though he had been on a whole food plant-based diet, low fat, salt, no oil for three years, he had crushing angelal symptoms. I came and put him on 100% raw with time restricted eating, put on extra on a compensation, angelal went away. His functional status went up. So, you know, it gets back to an early question that you asked and I addressed, 
to what extent we underestimate, what extent we overestimate, there's a little bit of both. And, and, and in regards to this question, uh, the answer to that question also is conditional based on the condition of the patient. Um, is heart disease and strokes a genetic disease or a lifestyle disease? And how often is it genetic? You know, I like to say every every disease is genetic, you know, and, and I say that because, you know, there's a genetic predisposition in terms of, 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 of having the underlying genes that are transcribed into the enzymes and other proteins that potentiate these events. So there's a genetic aspect to every disease. Having said that, when we say something, well, this is genetic or that's not genetic, oftentimes when we have a well-defined, you know, genetic disease, quote unquote, we probably have a disease that probably follows for the most part or a significant part, simple Mendelian genetics, as opposed to some other diseases may not follow simple Mendelian genetic rules. And you, know, you may have so many alleles where it's so confusing. One person will have it in the family and you may not get it for a long time, or maybe some diseases uh, come up with spontaneous gene mutations, or uh, some diseases uh, are manifested, you know, only through the epigenetics. So the genetic, underlying genetic predisposition is there, but the epigenetics may be manifested in certain people in different ways. So the genetic component is, is probably not as clear cut as we like to think of it is. So in answering that question, I think there's a genetic aspect to any disease, and I think uh, an environmental impact also is important. So when I think of an environmental impact, then that gets into things like food and lifestyle, you know, there's emotions and things like that, how well you sleep and so on. Uh, but there's also environmental things, how many chemicals are in your, your environment. Uh, somebody grew up in the, in the country compared to living in the city, I've had patients, uh, one patient come to mind, she, you know, lived in the, in the rural area and they, she was on a whole food plant-based diet. They milked cows and all that stuff. She was healthy. She moved to the city and um, started living life in the city. And she had a lot of chronic illnesses. Now, that's just one example, but it underscores the fact that there are environmental factors and environmental factors from multiple different sources. The food is a major source but there are other sources of environmental factors that serve to trigger the epigenetic factor that cause bring, bring about these diseases. Um, what is your thought on salt regarding heart disease and strokes? You know, we make a big argument to lower salt and I think, you know, it's a reasonable thing to do. Um, I think that our nutrients by and large should be uh, plant derived. So if you're gonna get a salt, it should be a plant derived salt. Uh, it should be a plant derived nutrient. So that's gonna be the ideal source. So sea vegetables or you know celery or the like. Having said that, um, I think many of the issues that we have with salt in terms of the, the high salt diet being a problem, many of the salty foods are also associated with many other uh, preservatives and chemicals and the like. And so we say, well, you know, uh, this person has heart failure and they, um, they had a, a cheeseburger and they had a fish sandwich uh, at the fish store and look at all that salt they had. And that's why they got sick. However, 
it's not just the salt in that food. There are other things in that food. So it's hard to tease salt out uh, from other preservatives and chemicals that may be contributing. So that's number one. Number two, most of the salt in these processed foods are not a natural salt that's found in sea vegetables or sea salt or the like. These are processed chemicals. They're, they're you know, boiled to high temperatures. They're, 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 they're um, bleached, talcum agents are added, et cetera. So these are different molecules. So they're contributing in a different way. So it's really hard to tease that that um, um, data out because yes, salt can be a culprit, especially the processed salt, but you have other chemicals that are involved most of the time. And so you're looking at a, an additive effect of salt plus other chemical preservatives and toxins that are contributing to the problem that the person's having. So it, it's it's more complex than salt. There are patients I have, and it's it's you know, it's not like you know, very 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 rare that we have to add salt to their diet uh, because they're very salt deficient because they're on a very low salt diet. Um, and so we, I think we just have to be careful of our recommendation of salt. I'd like people to get it from natural sources. Um, we tend to tell patients not to cook with their salt. If they're going to use the salt, use the light amounts as a as a as a sea salt. We monitor your blood pressure and those types of things. How effective are stents? How effective is bypass surgery? And what other regular procedures do you do? And how effective are they? So stents, I don't do stents or bypass surgeries. We I I always do casts and refer them. I don't cast anymore. I don't do the hands-on procedures. Actually, I refer them out now. I was doing that up until like four or five years ago. Uh, however, stents are effective only from the standpoint of relieving symptoms. Uh, in a targeted fashion, stents can be effective from, in, from the standpoint of relieving symptoms and in individuals who have symptoms who are, for whatever reason, not able to follow an aggressive lifestyle uh, modification and who are optimized on meds and still don't have symptom relief. Uh, you can say the same thing from bypass surgery. Uh, it can improve in terms of uh, symptom relief uh, for patients who are not you know, amenable to uh, angioplasty and stent and who are not able to follow an aggressive lifestyle intervention uh, and just doesn't have the means or wills to do that. So from that standpoint, uh, in my opinion, they, 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 they serve as alternatives to a natural uh, disease reversing approach. Uh, but I like to think of them as a symptom relief therapy, not so much as a disease reversal therapy. So when you think of talk about effectiveness, they're effective in terms of in, re reducing symptoms in certain situations. And in a similar fashion, in certain situations, you see some improvement in quality of life for a short period of time. But the progression of disease is not stopped. And that's borne out by the data in trials which show that there's no difference in terms of outcomes, i.e. heart attacks, death, et cetera, with stent versus medication, certainly with bypass versus medication. How do you decide when it's too late to focus on lifestyle and to instead tell the patient they need um, an aggressive surgery of some type? And when is it still okay to say, don't do anything medical, just change your diet and lifestyle completely. 
You know, that's a great question because I, I think it's, it's, I like that question large because it underscores, or at least it, it points out how we think of uh, lifestyle versus these other treatments as an either or. But I think of it as at the very least of both ends. I think this is, it's never too late to do a lifestyle intervention. In fact, uh, a patient, and, and, and I've had this in, in real life experience, in patients who are too sick for bypass, too sick for stent, too sick for surgery, that's when lifestyle intervention come into play. Now that's a raw detox diet. You know, that may be me feeding them raw cold press super greens through a peg tube and weaning off medication plus doing other adjunctive therapies. But it's in that situation Lifestyle intervention from the standpoint of superfood and nutritional manipulation plays an important role. So similarly, someone who's going for bypass surgery, or sir, you have bad, you know, bad severe heart failure, you have you know, cardiac arrhythmia, you have you know, four vessel bypass, you have crushing chest pain, we need to get you to the operating room. I would then say to that patient, you need to start a raw detox right now. The raw detox is such that. When that patient in the operating room, you're reducing inflammation, you're reducing cytokines, you know, you're, you're improving the underlying chemical biochemistry, reducing the chance for uh, perioperative atrial fibrillation. So it's, in my opinion, it's never too late, you know, short of the grave uh, for someone to get on an aggressive lifestyle intervention. Um, a lot of authors who are very credentialed are recommending keto diets. What is your real world experience? Do people with keto diets do as well as people on whole food plant-based diets in preventing heart disease and stroke? Or do you notice a difference in the results? I have not done a, uh, a scientific head-to-head comparison with a keto diet with uh, a whole food plant-based diet. What I, what I can say from my clinical experience uh, is that many of the patients whom I see coming in who are critically ill are either following a keto diet or a keto-like diet uh, in, in many situations. Uh, and they're coming in with uh, you know, early or mid-range uh, kidney failure, uh, heart failure, and the like. So we've had many people come in on a keto diet uh, and, and they have these advanced illnesses. So even though people on the keto diet can lose weight and they feel better, I've never seen an acutely ill patient. I'm talking about someone who coming in with volume overload, you know, renal failure, heart beating at 10%, you know, needing intravenous diuretics, being put on a keto diet and turning around. I just, I'm not, not able to see that. Uh, those patients not even able to digest the meat on a keto diet. I have to put those patients on cold-pressed juices because their, their bowels are so inflamed. I've not seen a patient with acute inflammatory bowel disease come in and do better on a keto diet. I, I, again, I haven't done the studies, but most of those patients I'm seeing are coming in on a diet which, in which they're eating a high amount of animal protein. I mean, the, the average American is eating something close to a keto diet because most of their food are animal-based protein whether it's from eggs, dairy, uh, any form of the animal flesh, 
The only problem with the standard American diet, different than the keto diet, is that they're eating a lot of processed carbohydrates also. And so you can make the argument to remove those processed carbohydrates, uh, make them better. But from a person who's very acutely ill, you have to remove more than just processed carbohydrates. Do you put people on statin drugs or cholesterol drugs? I routinely don't put them on that. I routinely do not recommend these drugs. Uh, I only use them in a setting where someone has a very abnormal lipid profile and they just don't want to follow an aggressive lifestyle approach. Then I just do that from a standpoint of following so-called standard uh, uh, medical practice. But um, uh, I don't utilize these things uh, on a regular basis on patients who are following our, our lifestyle recommendations. If someone believes they are in good health, do you recommend cryotherapy or jumping in a lake or a river or stream in the winter when it's cold? Is it, um, is it too shocking to the heart or is it a helpful idea? I don't have any clinical experience with cryotherapy. It's something that we uh, plan to look at. I understand other centers use cryotherapy I just don't have enough clinical experience with cryotherapy to fully answer that question. Okay. Um, can we reverse heart disease? Uh, yes, it depends on your definition, but um, you know, reversal, um, as I tend to define it in my clinical practice, is where you know you're headed on a certain trajectory, and there's a there's a halting of that forward progression. That's one. That's maybe a phase one reversal, you know, a slowing, a halting of the progression. And then a turnabout. Uh, the turnabout could be a small process where, say, the heart pumping function gets a little stronger, heart perfusion gets better, um, function gets better. Uh, and, and other parameters get better. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, the heart becomes completely normal, but it means that you halt progression and you turn things around to where there's a certain improvement from the worst point that you were at. And so that by that definition reversal, uh, we see that on a regular basis. Um, if we feel fine and we think we're in good, good enough shape and we're eating well, are there certain tests you still want us to get? Medical tests? That's, yeah, that's a great question. You know, if, um, and, and my, my answer to that, what I'll say is this, my answer to that is evolving. So here's what, I, what my answer today is. The answer is yes. Uh, if we, let's say we're eating a healthy, raw plant-based diet, we're exercising, sleeping well, we're managing our stress well, um, we are all still in this toxic environment. You know, we're all living in earth. We're breathing this air. We're, we're consuming water. You may go on vacation and stay in a hotel and shower in the hotel water. You, you have the chance of being exposed to toxins on a regular basis. So having said that, we tend to recommend our clients get basic blood tests we look at kidney function, et cetera, but we also recommend micronutrient deficiency testing. Um, we also recommend, to a certain extent, measuring for toxic metals that may be in the blood. 
uh, we plan to start measuring for zero estrogens uh, that may get in the blood periodically. So understanding the level of toxins that you're exposed to, even though you're feeling well, you're healthy, uh, I think can be beneficial because you know you can monitor that and then you can do certain things to to uh, reverse those things, certainly re re reduce your exposure to them. Uh, and so, you know, if you have a lot of glyphosate in your, your system, uh, you may want to look at the plant foods that you're exposed to and make a change, get locally grown, et cetera. So there are a lot of things that you can do uh, by just simply monitoring the amount of toxins in your blood. So that's, I think, would be a great health practice. Um, if you would like to ask a question, please raise your hand. Um, Dr. Montgomery, um, do you have any nutritional supplements that you feel like we should be taking? What we find in our practice on a fairly regular basis is uh, magnesium deficiency, in which we recommend. Of course, you know, being a cardiology practice, and we see patients with all sorts of ailments, uh, but certainly people with cardi cardiovascular disease may come in with arrhythmias or symptoms of arrhythmias. They come with high blood pressure, so we measure RBC magnesium. We try to get some idea of the, the tissue level of magnesium. Uh, and so we see a fair amount of magnesium deficiency because we're looking for it. We see a fair amount of vitamin D deficiency we're looking for. It. Uh, so vitamin D, magnesium are, 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 are things that we supplement a fair amount. Uh, coenzyme Q10, certainly with our heart failure patients. Um, and, and you know vitamin C, much of that you get from your foods, but sometimes we'll use that in a target supplementation uh, uh, as well as curcumin. Uh, we have a liposomal curcumin that we use uh, for a lot of our patients with systemic inflammatory conditions, uh, arthritic conditions and the like. So we use them in a target fashion to help early on with symptom relief. And then we optimize their nutrition. And then, you know, and then we'll fine tune the supplements that we may recommend based on micronutrient testing or, or, or based on toxins that we measure or the like. Okay, Mona, would you like to ask a question and where are you from? Yes, I'm from Savannah, Georgia. And I have had a, I have a question about SVTs for one thing, but this is in regards to it. My sleep study was done prior to going whole food plant-based. And um, it was done without my CPAP on. Since then, I've been going, I've been doing whole food plant-based strictly without um, alcohol, oil, salt, liquid oils, and salt. My concern is, should I um, follow up on the, and it was a very short blip of SVT. Should I follow up on that? So during your sleep study, you had a short run of supraventricular tachycardia. Uh, they say short run, it was short enough for them to count the beats. It was like a minute or 10 beats or something like that. Did they? According to the report, it, it looks like it was enough to count the beats. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say in general. What I tend to, to tell my patients is the following is, you know, I also follow up on something like that. Uh, but also follow, I follow up in two ways. I may repeat some cardiac monitoring not just a sleep study, but I'll just do, uh, for my patient, I would do, if I see something like that, then I would do a, say a 21 day monitoring. So a 24 hour halter plus another, you know, two or three weeks of cardiac monitoring with, you know, uh, outpatient telemetry. So that gives me an idea of the amount of, you know, arrhythmic burden. 
So, so that would be important to follow up from that standpoint. Another way you follow up on the arrhythmia is to look at electrolyte abnormalities, see if there's, um, you know, like I said before, magnesium deficiency and potassium, look at those electrolytes uh, to evaluate that. Then, of course, you want to look at the structure of the heart. Uh, you know, is there you know, heart failure? Is there not heart failure? So you want to, when you see an abnormality, you follow up on the abnormality by doing more testing to see, okay, is there more of that there? That's one. Then two, you follow up by looking at things that may be associated with that, maybe causative agents, electrolyte abnormalities, or uh, structural heart abnormalities that may predispose someone having this uh, SVT. And SVT, again, you know, uh, that could be different mechanisms. So if someone has SVT, if I'm looking at a tracing, I'm going to say, well, is this, you know, AV nodal wrench and tachycardia? Is this concealed accessory pathway? Is this uh, multifocal ectopic atrial tachycardia? So the different mechanism of SVT and the different mechanisms will, 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 will predispose me to think of a different underlying uh, cause. I did have a, a stress test with injection um, after that, sometime afterwards, and it seemed to be okay except for a little leaky, you know, valve. Okay. Yeah, and those things are good. You also want to make sure that the heart overall is structurally normal because a structurally normal heart certainly is a good sign. You want to kind of look at this from a global problem. You see one small isolated problem, then what you should do is step back and say, okay, what's the global condition uh, of the heart itself? And the global condition of the heart is that, well, you know, stress test is normal, heart pumping function is normal, you know, no ischemia, et cetera, et cetera. You say, okay, that's all, those are all things pointing in the right direction. And so this one electrolyte abnormality could be due to elect uh, electrolyte abnormality or something like that. And so you you tend to be less worried about it if you know other aspects of cardiac function are normal. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the question. Janine, would you like to ask a question and where are you from? Um, hello, thank you very much for your talk. Um, my name's Janine. I'm from New South Wales in Australia. Um, I listened to you talking about oils in the diet, and it seems to me from there seems to be a lot of confusion, at least in my mind. I listened to Udo Erasmus the other day, and he was talking about um, oils and having oils that are uncooked and eating that. And I know that we need the omega threes and six and nines, but if we just ate the whole food, like the um, the walnuts and so forth, is that enough for us should we be taking these supplements should we cut out all oils on salad dressings i feel that there's a lot of mixed messages out there um, particularly you know if you're looking for um overall health obviously for joint health for heart health for obesity i really don't know what to do <laughs> so no, i would I, just like to listen to your point of view no i hear you and, and, and you know and you're exactly right there's there's a lot of there are a lot of mixed messages. And you know what, what I would suggest people do is put things in the context. So let me let me sort of give an example. Um, and, and let's take, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get back to oils in a minute. I'm just gonna use this example. My colleague and friend, Dr. Esselson, is really big on, okay, no avocados, no nuts or seeds, et cetera, no oil. Uh, but when you really talk to him, he'll say, well, you know, 
uh, you know, we're supposed to have these nuts and things are in a shell for a reason. It limits the amount that we eat. And so when you listen to that messaging, you know, it's not an absolute no nuts or no seeds. Uh, you know, if you really listen and you pin them down, you'll say, yeah, you can have this, me, this, that, and so on. Uh, but but the the major messaging is no no nuts and seeds because there's a many people will then take that and say well I can have nuts and seeds and so oftentimes a, a speaker or practitioner will say okay no nuts no seeds because that's what seeps through uh, and and that's what the person remembers back to the oils you know oils there may be situations where oils are not harmful. But but the ideal situation for oil would be in the context of the whole food. It's sort of like having a family together. And so you want to say, okay, the ideal situation for the oil is there. Now, you may have somebody, you know, who may not be able to convert, you know, uh, or break down these seeds in the way they need to be broken down uh, uh, to convert these oils into certain end products. Uh, but by and large, the whole foods are ideal. Sometimes whole foods are difficult to consume because chewing, some people may not be able to chew these foods or break them down. Um, and so you might make a similar argument for uh, the nuts or seeds. People may not be able to break them down, be it some problem, the GI tract or the like. So there are there's circumstances where, you know, the whole food itself in a certain individual, in a certain context, may not be ideal. That's why we use juice feasting. Uh, we use blue-green algaes that have their oils in them uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a liquid form so they're more easily absorbed. You may have a colleague come and say, well, I don't believe in juices or smoothies. There, there's too much sugar. But if you're using the whole food, mixing with vegetables, it's cold-pressed. You're not adding sugars. You're not boiling. You're not, you're not pasteurizing it then it is a minimally processed foods and we've seen good results with that. And so back to the oils, the reason I say no oils is because if I were to come and say, look, you can have oils, but these are the circumstances. Then somebody's, what are you gonna, many people are gonna hear it. Well, Montgomery says I can have oil. And then you got, you go on supermarket X, and pull olive oil off the shelf that's, you know, olive oil brand X that's been sitting on the shelf for six months. Uh, it was heat extracted to start with. They add a little Crisco to top it off. And there you have the oil. And not to mention, you're going to start frying with it. Because the only thing you remember Montgomery saying is oil is okay. And you're not going to hear pop, 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 pop. And so oftentimes the messaging has to be such that it's direct messaging. And so by and large, oils are not ideal foods because they're extracted from their natural you know, environment. And many of the good aspects of that food are left behind, lignans in the case of seeds and nuts or the like. So that's where you hear oils, but they're, they're I mean, some patients, well, you know, you can get certain type of olive oils processed in a certain way to be beneficial. I'm not aware of those studies, and there may be studies showing the benefit in certain circumstances. Uh, so I, I'll allow oils if you're having it in the form of a vitamin D supplement or something like that. 
but by and large, I think the messaging is consistent. No oils, no processed oils. And even people say you can't have oils. If you quiz them, say, well, can I fry my vegetables in oil? I bet they would say for the most part, no. And so that's where you get the common denominator of the messaging, right? Because it's the processing of the oil. So you hear Montgomery say no oils at all. I'm thinking of the oil that's sitting on the shelf that's been there for six months and undergoes a natural processing. And that person that says oil's okay in this circumstances are not really talking about that. And so you can find, what I would suggest to find the common denominator in what we're saying, we're all saying no processed oil. But when I say no oil, I'm looking at most oils on the shelf are processed by one means or another. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hope that clears it up. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's more confusing. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not more confused. I think I'm just a little bit more annoyed at the mixed messaging that we that sort of like is out yeah. there all the time, you know, and yeah. I find, yeah. find that confusing. Yeah, the mixed messaging is there. We we all come at this in different perspectives and we all have yeah. a different uh you know when i listen to when i listen to me and my colleague many of my colleagues who will say okay i don't recommend this for this reason and that reason i try to get the context in which they're speaking and and and, and it's easy for me to do that because i know my perspective and so i get an understanding for their perspective i'm a big uh, proponent of eating a high percentage of raw foods and all raw if you're really sick you can add cooked over time uh, larger because raw foods are more healing and more healing rapidly. Now, somebody else would say, well, uh, there's data showing that, you know, certain carotenoids and carrots are more prevalent when you cook the carrots. Okay, that may be correct. However, just because a micronutrient A is more prevalent when it's cooked, there may be other micronutrients that we've yet to discover that's less prevalent. And then that exactly. cooked carrot may be more off balance than the raw carrot. So, so even that argument can can you know be a little bit incomplete. Thank you so much, Judy. Would you like to ask a question? And where are you from? Yes, I'm from Philadelphia, PA area, and um, I know that some doctors, including Dr. Esselton, have said as we get older, we don't absorb nitric oxide as well, nitric acid. I'm sorry, as well from our vegetables. Um, Dr. Esselton's recommended um, adding vinegar. Some other doctors have recommended um, supplements. Just wondering what your thoughts are on this. You know, those are all good things. And, you know, adding vinegar to your greens, I think it's good. It certainly can add flavor. You more greens is good. Um, you know, we use an L-citrulline supplementation for patients, which, you know, we also use infrared sauna therapy which is a way of improving nitric oxide production. We also use ozone infusion therapy. It's right as the body gets older, there's a breaking down process. And I think we, and that's why I alluded to earlier, in our practice, we're using more other adjunct therapies to sort of help enhance the body's physiological functioning. And even stem cell, uh, mesenchymal stem cell therapy uh, can be helpful in certain cases. Ozone therapy helps the body create more stem cells, which helps repair a lot of the chronic breakdown and inflammation and improve cellular function. So the so-called you know, aging process or, or debilitation with aging is a debilitation 
with a chronic breakdown process, a chronic buildup of toxins. You know, we should be, you know, uh, converting these molecules as effective in older ages as we're on younger ages. So we need to look at other things. And that's the, that's the small percentage where we say, okay, nutrition, uh, we may overestimate nutrition alone because, you know, we need to look at how much the body's broken down and consider other adjunctive therapies to enhance the body, uh, the body's ability to repair itself in addition to the food. All right. Well, thank you. Because I'm I'm in that over sixty range, and um, sometimes from the vinegar, I get like a lot of like mouth canker sores and things. So mm -hmm. I want to mm -hmm. try to cut down on that. Yeah, I mean, you want to, you may consider, I mean, people, you know, we have our patients do things like infrared sauna therapy, which is an excellent adjunct to help move toxins out of the body by sweating. Uh, it, it, it helps the body produce nitric oxide, improve circulation. Uh, there's clearly data showing benefits for people with coronary disease. Um, and that's uh, uh, finished data showing with people with uh, coronary disease having improved survival, long-term survival with uh, uh, three to five, you know, 20, 30-minute sauna treatments a week. Uh, there's data out of Japan showing benefits of patient heart failure uh, in just as short as two weeks with a two-week, five-day-per-week uh, treatment regimen. So infrared sauna uh, has been shown to be helpful as well. Uh, and so, um, so there, there are other modalities beyond just the food that will help your body um, enhance its overall function. Thank you very much. Welcome. Um, Dr. Montgomery, we are very focused on heart disease and stroke. Do the same things that cause heart disease and strokes also cause problems with uh, sex drive? or erectile dysfunction? Yeah, these are all things that are, are biochemical imbalance. And we think of these things in terms of, of vascular abnormalities, and that's true, but it's more than just vascular abnormalities. These things are uh, toxins that build up uh, that in the system uh, that contributes to hormone imbalance. Uh, so all of these things, and, and libido's multiple factors, not just hormone, there's probably neurological components that contribute to that. So there are a lot of factors that uh, electrolyte, I mean, zinc uh, deficiency can contribute to testosterone deficiency. So there are a lot of things that contribute to this, uh, these factors that are multifactorial, not just from the standpoint of poor vascular symptoms. When we think of heart attack and stroke and erectile dysfunction, we think of vascular abnormalities. But we also have to step back and broaden the scope and say it's biochemical abnormalities in general. Because uh, the heart attack and stroke, you know, again, there's, there's systemic biochemical things that contribute to these things uh, as well. You talk about things like hormone balance, uh, toxin buildup at the tissue level, so on and so forth. What about the um, sort of new vegan burgers, the Beyonds and Impossible and other pea protein burgers? Is this an improvement over animal products or is it still too processed and causes simple problems? You know, if you ask if there's an improvement over animal products, um, it, it depends on the perspective. So if you say, well, uh, we're not killing animals and we're eating these things, um, it might be an improvement, but I think you're still killing animals. Maybe the cows are doing better. 
but the humans are not doing better. So like if you kill the cow and feed the cow to the human, uh, maybe you're killing the cow and the human. But if you uh, don't kill the cow and feed the human the impossible burger or beyond burger, you're only killing the human. So maybe it's better because you're only killing one animal. But somebody's, you know, catching it. Uh, and so I don't like these, you know, processed foods because it's the processing of food. You, you can take, I mean, it's, forget about the overly, you know, laboratory manufactured Beyond Burger uh, and, and Impossible Burger. We can see how those things are problematic, all the things you're putting in it. Just take a, you know, a, uh, a, a carrot, uh, a piece of broccoli and, 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 and batter it and fry it you know, uh, then that broccoli has been turned into a toxin. So a toxic food by definition is toxic, whether it's an animal source or a plant source, it's a toxic food. Um, there are people that eat a, a, what they call a carnivorous diet. I guess it's all meat. Have you had any real world experience of what happens to people who follow this type of diet for an extended period of diet time? No, I haven't. It's not like, uh, you know, the ending of a horror picture show, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've heard people report these things. I just don't. Um, I, I would like to look at some data. I haven't had time to research that. I've heard, and, and it's only recent. I mean, we're all familiar with the keto diet and, and various other high meat, high fat diets. Uh, but even those diets allow for vegetables. They just remove, you know, processed carbohydrates. My understanding of the keto diet is that, you know, they don't promote any vegetables. Now, I could be wrong, but, you know, I've heard certain people recommend it. It's just all meat. Um, and I guess maybe there's some eggs, I'm not sure. But, you know, that's, that's a pretty aggressive animal-driven uh, diet. Now, I've heard people talk about eating those foods, and, and, and I guess they're still allowed to talk about it. I just don't know of any long-term data supporting it. I, I think that what we're talking about is the carnivorous diet. The keto diet, I believe, does include vegetables. It's the carnivorous diet that's all animal products, just only. That's right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The carnivorous diet is one that's fairly new. I say we're familiar with the keto diet, which has high meat and fat and allow some vegetables. The carnivorous diet is even more extreme. And, and I was making a difference between the two mean that even the keto diet, I can see how that could be beneficial because there's still plant foods that are there. The carnivorous diet, I mean, it's very difficult to see that. Now, oftentimes people talk about Eskimos and, you know, Eskimos, they eat a lot of, you know, whale blubber, or whatever. They're probably getting some of the algae from the guts of the, the fish that they're eating. Um, and maybe they're getting some greens and maybe the keto diet give you some trace amounts of you know, plant foods from if you eat in the intestines and organs of the, the, the carnivorous diet, rather, is giving you some trace amounts of nutrients there. But I, I just don't, uh, I'm not aware of the long-term data or if there's any long-term data on the carnivorous diet. Do you ever recommend bariatric surgery for people? Um, I have to say extremely rarely. I, I can't, Think of a time where I solely recommended bariatric surgery. Now, frequently patients will come to me to get clearance to undergo bariatric surgery. And then we'll do the cardiac evaluation and, and, and determine that the heart is strong enough to undergo general anesthesia. 
they would say they're clinical surgery. That's not a point blank recommendation. So really, I have to say I almost never recommend bariatric surgery. I only do cardiac clearance for it, and that's when the patients already decide they want to have it. Can we, I know you are a cardiologist, but do you have any input on whether or not we can prevent cancer? You know, cancer is a multifactorial disease. Obviously, like any disease, there's a genetic component, but there's a huge environmental factor. I mean, you know, certainly bad food predisposes to cancer. Lots of people throw the percentage around 70% or whatever. Um, whatever that number is, there, there are other environmental factors that are contributing. So, you know, toxins in the water, uh, estrogen. And so that's why we need to be more mindful of what the chemicals that, that are building up in our bodies are. You know, women wear makeup and hair products on a regular basis. Um, you know, we, we put you know, different types of things on our body. We might moisturize ourselves with Vaseline or whatever. I don't know what it is, but uh, there, there's these toxins that are getting in our system, our cleaning products, you know, uh, you know, we're using certain air fresheners and the like, uh, certain um, uh, things that we dry our clothes with to get on our clothes, the, the, the actual clothes we wear. So we have to start being mindful of these things. You know, we talk about this so-called magical cure to cancer. And maybe this magical cure to cancer is for us to, you know, um, both individually and, and collectively in the medical society, say, let's start to take a global look at the toxins coming into our system. You know, consuming a whole food plant-based diet removes a major set of toxins, especially when it processed carbohydrates being removed and animal products being removed. But the other chemicals and toxins need to be, that need to be removed as well, even the plant foods that we're consuming, how they're grown and, and what they're exposed to chemically. And then the products we use in our house, the products we use on our clothing, all that stuff. So we start to take a big global look at what our environment is. Then I think we can start to say, you know what? We can probably get a pretty good handle on uh, preventing a lot of cancers. If we start to say, hey, we get a lot of toxins on the system. Let's start to remove these things systematically. What is the absolute worst food we could eat for our heart? Oh, goodness. Hmm. Uh, a double cheese bacon, a double meat bacon cheeseburger uh, with a donut <laughs> in between the double meat. <laughs> I think I've covered the bases pretty well. Okay. And then, I get, and then one of the patties being an impossible burger. Okay. <laughs> um, let me squeeze in one final question. Rita, would you like to ask a question? Where are you from? Uh, thank you, Stephen. Uh, I'm from Long Island. Uh, Dr. Montgomery, one question. For the swollen feet, uh, nothing is wrong vascularly. Uh, what is one supposed to be doing if it is untreated? Because both three times the vascular surgeon said it's okay, just leave the way it is. If you don't want to take the medic, you know, if a patient doesn't want to take a medication, what are your thoughts? Just leave so, the way it is. Well, if someone has swollen feet, again, any abnormalities is a, is a signal. So, for instance, you know, we look at abnormalities and we think of it two different ways to say, well, you know, your feet swollen. Uh, if they're not bothering you, don't bother them. 
uh, and we do all of our basic tests. You know, we we may check for blood clots, and then no blood clots. We may check renal function. Renal function fine. There's no overt heart failure. There's no whatever. Um, and maybe there's no venous insufficiency. And so we say, okay, well, we didn't see anything, so you know, forget about it. Um, I, I don't take that attitude. So you know, the things, you know, just because we don't see things doesn't mean they're not there. And there are certain things that exist at the tissue and cellular level that cannot be picked up by our blood tests and cannot be picked up by our diagnostic imaging studies. And so then you have to get into the process of, of analytical thinking. Because if, if something, you know, doctors, we, we, um, we make good use of the tools we have, the blood tests and the imaging studies. But sometimes we, we fail to use the tool between our ears, which is our brain. And sometimes you have to you know, be analytical about it. So, for example, you know, if I'm faced with a patient with swollen feet, you know, maybe the kidneys are not totally normal, but there's some other aspect of it. Maybe there's a little inflammatory marker is a little bit off, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, maybe the patient's history, uh, some things. And how did the swelling come on? There was a sudden onset. So you want to put, you want to get a lot of other clues to then make an analytical assessment on the empirical data. Uh, it's not going to be a test that you pull it out like a pregnancy test is like, okay, you know, a slash or a plus or whatever. You know, I mean, medicine is not always that way. So we have to be like detectives and say, okay, what's going on systemically with that person? And what sort of clues may suggest a pro underlying process that's causing swelling? Because swelling is a signal uh, as well as it is a symptom of something that's off balance or abnormal. So I wouldn't say just to forget about it. I'd say keep thinking about it and trying different things. And that's why I like to do raw detox diet because at least local inflammation, different things like that would help the body clear, clear itself up. The detox... Uh, detox, we use detox frequently because you poor lymphatic drainage may be the case. You have may have poor lymphatic drainage. And we can't measure lymphatic drainage very well. Okay. So the lymphatic massage does help. Lymphatic massage often helps with that, but also nutritional detox help clean up the venous, uh, the, the lymphatic system as well. So a combination. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so Dr. Montgomery, how can we stay in touch with you and follow up and get your books? What's the best way? Well, um, uh, my website, MontgomeryHeart.com, is a great uh, place to follow us. That's the hub of all of our information. We have a new docket series coming out. If you had a chance to see my talk, I showed episode one. And Heart and Soul of a Champion, HeartandSoulofaChampion.com uh, is the site, and there's a website showing that. Uh, and the reason I like to point to the doctor series, we've completed uh, season one. Season two is under production and, and probably will probably be released uh, this November. Uh, it's chronic illness in women. Season one is uh, athletes edition. So we got mostly retired football players. So you see a very narrow uh, perspective of patients. Uh, but, but season two is chronic illness in women. But on our website, there's a lot of educational material. We have an online community. So uh, many people from all over the world, from the UK, Australia, et cetera, are members of our community. In our community, you have access to 
things like recipes. Uh, we bring experts similar to the experts you bring here into the community where you can ask me questions one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, you have exposure to me once a month on Stump the Chump, pretty much like what you're doing now. Uh, and people bring questions. Uh, we do case presentations. Uh, and plus you're interacting with a community of people who are like-minded. And so that's our community. We have online coaching courses, the FoodRx Nutritional Rebo course. That's an on-demand course. The Healthy Lifestyle Series course is a course includes the rebuild on-demand components, which and it also has uh, other components. So there's a lot of information and material uh, on our website. Uh, and just by reading, reading the website itself, we talk about uh, the essence of detox, what it means to detox, the food classification system. Uh, we talk about how we manage certain ailments and the like. Uh, so there's a wealth of information there and you can get in touch with us by calling our center. Uh, and, and people with uh, a different spectrum of, of illnesses fly from all over the world to come and see us uh, to undergo uh, one of our disease reversal programs. So depending on where you are on the spectrum and what your needs are, uh, we, we've tried to make uh, something for you um, uh, to help out in terms of, uh, uh, you know, give you help in terms of reversing and, and achieving optimal health. Thank you so much for tonight and for sharing all your great information and knowledge from all your years of experience. I really appreciate it. And if we could unmute everyone else um, so other people can also have an opportunity to thank Dr. Montgomery. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Montgomery. Thank you, Dr. Montgomery.